Well, g'day and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. Uh, my name's Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. And for those of you who don't know much about CIS, uh, we're a public policy research organisation that's primarily committed to promoting economic freedom, small government and cultural conservatism. We also don't shy away from important and provocative debates. And nothing better demonstrates our commitment to a fair and balanced debate than the subject of immigration. Since the end of World War II, uh, Australia, announced by the then Federal Immigration Minister Arthur Corwell, embarked on a policy called Populate or Perish. For the last generation or so, as the distinguished historian John Hurst often argued, a tough, orderly border protection policy helped boost public confidence in large-scale, non-discriminatory immigration. But clearly, as we've seen just now, and especially in recent weeks since the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott weighed into this issue, calling for cuts to immigration at the Sydney Institute, the climate is changing politically. So we thought we'd have the debate. The motion, the case for a big Australia. On the affirmative side, Professor Glenn Withers and Adam Crichton, and on the negative side, Judith Sloan and Mark Latham. So to get things rolling, please welcome Professor Glenn Withers from the Australian National University. Why Kevin Rudd was right, case for a big Australia. <laughs> yes. uh, why Kevin Rudd was right on the case for big Australia, yes. <laughs> Not a general statement. I'm honoured to be invited, thank you, uh, and for the invitation. Uh, and uh, from the CIS, and uh, I'm delighted to be the first speaker because uh, we W's are usually at the end of any uh, process, and we put up with the warm milk. Uh, for those of you of my age, will understand. Uh, I'm daunted too because uh, I'm being followed by such uh, polished public intellectuals as uh, Mark Latham and Judith Sloan. Uh, but on my side, I've got Adam Creighton, so we're ahead of the game. It's great. <laughs> And in particular because Adam and I uh, have the advantage in a, in a CIS uh, context of being uh, the champions of a freer market uh, in uh, the way in which humans uh, organise their affairs. Uh, in this case, um, uh, it's the opponents who are the command and control folk. Uh, they are the proponents and concerned about market failure, uh, spillovers and such like. Uh, and uh, we, in the case of Adam and I, are on the side of... Uh, quite commonly expressed business views, and I do note that both Mark and Judith have expressed views earlier that I'd say much more like uh, green environmentalists and uh, union officials on immigration matters. So uh, we, we start with, I think, a significant advantage in this uh, discussion. But of course, I'm not a polemicist. I'm, I'm uh, somebody who lives in logic and evidence, which is, of course, what our side of the debate will be relying uh, upon. Uh, we have no truck with more border force and more Moscow and Monglo to control people movement. Um, let me start with a proposition, which is that uh, there's a range of global studies in this area that look at population in a global sense. They uh, find that uh, global population is actually levelling out uh, in terms of growth and will probably peak by about 2050 at the global level, and uh, that uh, if you allowed free movement, of those peoples who wish to relocate around the globe, you would conservatively at least double global GDP. And hence, when we're talking about the given population then, uh, you'd have doubling of GDP per capita. 
So uh, in fact, following the globalization logic from free trade and uh, free investment movements into people movements would, if there was nothing inhibiting those movements, be a, a significant benefit for humankind in material prosperity. Uh, so this is uh, a, an interesting, strong intellectual point, I think, to start with, uh, because it times in with the global battle at the moment over protectionism uh, versus uh, globalization, with the ironies attached to that of uh, the American president being the champion of protectionism and the Chinese president being the, the champion of uh, globalization. So it's confusing times, but in our case, we want to look at how that works itself out in the area of... Um, Australian immigration uh, matters. Uh, but it does, this debate that's been opened up, uh, including by people like Mark and Judith in particular, actually, uh, along with others, uh, Dick Smith and Tony Abbott, have, have brought it to some significant prominence lately. And uh, it's a good time to, to look at these sorts of issues because I'm also an economic historian and I've noted that in the post-war period, we've had a period of uh, under, under sort of... Uh, Menzies and his uh, predecessor Chifley, uh, a 26-year-long boom. And then we had about 10 years, a decade, think of it a quarter century and a decade, of political confusion, where we went from Holt, McEwen, McMahon, Whitlam, Fraser, etc. That was resolved by the, uh, the Hawke, Keating and Howard era, which gave us another long period of uh, boom. But at the end of that period too, there's been a rather confusing decade which is the, um, the period of Rudd Gillard, Rudd Abbott, Turnbull. It looks like we in Australia have a pattern of being able to work well and live together well as a prospering society, because we're one of the more successful societies, uh, for a quarter of a century, but then our ad adaptation to that starts to have us interrogate ourselves and, and rethink what we're doing as a society. We're doing that right now. We've clearly been through that period. Uh, so we're at a crossroads, which we often say, but genuinely I think uh, from that historical construction we're at a crossroads. Part of that is a reconstruction and re-examination of what it means for us to have the immigration foundation for our country that uh, we've had literally 30,000 years ago, but most recently in the last couple of 100 years, uh, <coughs> one of the higher immigration countries uh, in the world. We've got 25% of the population overseas born as a sort of factoid and about 40% plus uh, are either a migrant or the, um, uh, the child of uh, one migrant parent at least. So we're talking about something pretty fundamental to the nature of Australia. And uh, uh, it's something that overseas you might say, golly, look, there's a lot of recognition of Australia's achievement here. Why are we worrying about it? Why have we got the angst? Uh, the Brexit debate and the US president election, presidential election held up Australian immigration uh, as worthy of admiration and uh, emulation and yet we're agonising. Uh, but the fact is there are genuine issues that are worth agonising over to get the settings right, particularly at this time in our historical uh, evolution, because uh, getting that right helps define the nature of Australia for the future, and we want that to be the most appropriate. Um, I think one way to do that is to impose a bit of a framework on this, that is, um, it seems to me from some long involvement in this area that there are about five things that are really looked at on the, on the claims for immigration uh, being a major force for uh, advance of us as a society. Uh, there's, a, there's a claim for economic vigour, there's a claim for social savings and there's a claim for global positioning. 
But on the opposite side, on the pain rather than pleasure side of the uh, calculus, there's a lot of concern over what it means for cities and the environment and what it means for social cohesion and culture. Uh, and examining each of these items, if you're not going to be an absolutist and simply say one of those matters to me and that's the end of the story, if you want to be more like a, a middle-of-the-road economist like I am, I want to add those things up and see how they balance out. And in that sense, I'm a sort of utilitarian much of the time, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. What will the balance of immigration policy produce for these issues? And uh, I think going through it like that really helps. I was once at a, um, a debate that Steve Braxer organised that starred Tim Flannery and Malcolm Fraser. Tim started by saying that Australia's population should be 12 to 15 million. Malcolm came along and said it needs to be 50 million plus. Uh, by the end of the debate, they were arguing over whether it should be 25, 30 or 35. That is, they went through all the elements and, and converged. And so uh, it does seem to me that we need, as we're going to do in this debate, uh, go through the evidence on whether it produces an economic figure, which I think the methodological analysis from The Economist confirms. Uh, it does produce savings through reduced ageing of the population, uh, that is, the pace of uh, ageing of the population. It does enhance our global positioning if we sustain a higher level of migration. There are ways of dealing with the cities and environmental issues, including greater regional migration, and there are ways of leadership dealing with the social cohesion and cultural issues that, uh, that come in inevitably as the elephant in the room on debate about uh, immigration. And I'd be very happy to uh, elaborate on any of those and put where immigration fits into the much bigger context of it being part of a package of the reinvigoration of Australia through uh, very substantial re redevelopment of, uh, of, of uh, economic reform on the commercial side and uh, investing in our capability in infrastructure and investment and in education, investment in education and innovation on the, on the capability side. And immigration should be part of that. Thank you. Glenn, thank you. Uh, now for our next speaker, Judith Sloan from The Australian. Um, thank you very much. I think one of the things that we need to sort out uh, at this point is what are the objectives um, that governments should be uh, pursuing when it comes to immigration and, I guess, population. To tell you the truth, I'm a little l lukewarm about the idea of a population policy. That sounds sort of very central planning to me, but I'll come back to that. It seems to me that the, the objective should be to maximise the wellbeing of the incumbent population. Now, I don't know, some of you might have seen Peter Martin's absolutely extraordinary article saying that, in fact, the objective of the Australian government should be somehow to maximise the welfare of the world and that Australia has some a social licence to populate um, the country with people from all over the place. I fiercely reject that proposition. And I think it's quite important when you're thinking about this topic that... Um, maximising the well-being of the incumbent population is probably what most people would agree with, okay? It includes new migrants, probably new permanent migrants, uh, but it includes everyone else. We can have some secondary objectives. For example, we can have, um, you know, a relatively modest but well-targeted humanitarian program, and I think most people would go along with that. 
So here's another, and this is not a factoid, Glenn, this is an actual fact. Australia has one of the um, highest rates of population growth in the world. I'm not talking about the developing world and the developed world, I'm talking in the world. In fact, the population of the world is growing by 1.1% and Australia's population is growing by 1.6%. The only place, really, that has a higher population growth rate is PNG. Um, so, you know, UK 0.7, US 0.6, a lot of European countries, extremely low rates of population growth. So we have to ask ourselves, why would that be a sensible idea to be so out of whack with the population growth of other countries? And of course, it's not just an issue of the number, it's also the spatial location of that. So um, nearly two-thirds to three-quarters of the population growth is being driven by immigration. So the rest is being driven just by natural increase, births over deaths. But most of that population is going to New South Wales and Victoria. <coughs> now, and indeed when I say that, I really mean to Sydney and Melbourne. So about two-thirds of the growth is coming to those two cities. And it's all very well to be sanguine about, oh, we can fix up the infrastructure problems, we can fix up the loss of urban amenity, we can fix up the environmental pressures. I'm not nearly so sanguine, and uh, do we really trust state governments to be able to do it either uh, in a kind of practical sense, but certainly in a timely sense. So let me just talk about the economics of immigration because uh, I guess that's my area of expertise, although it's yours too, Glenn. Um, <laughs> what does the economics of immigration tell us? Okay, what it tells us is that there is probably a very small positive impact of immigration on per capita uh, GDP or per capita income, okay? Everyone here will agree that there's no point talking about absolute growth. Of course, if you grow immigration, you grow the absolute size of the economy, but we must be concerned with per capita growth. Um, it takes a very long time to get that positive economic uh, impact, probably 25 to 30 years. And in the short term, we actually have a decline because uh, the capital to labour ratio uh, goes down, there's a dilution of capital and productivity goes down. So the idea that immigration is some sort of boost to the economy is not true. Um, but this is, I think, where it's really important and which has been undercooked. There are clearly distributional impacts um, of immigration. So who are the winners? So the winners, of course, are largely the immigrants themselves, okay? Um, businesses, businesses can't get enough of this, this is great, you know, we're mm -hmm. growing their business for them, we're providing them with workers which they might otherwise have to train. So businesses, <laughs> um, they're also the beneficiaries. And complementary workers, workers who have skills that complement the immigrants. Workers who have uh, substitutable skills, they're clearly the losers. And I refer in particular to the work of George Borges, who of course is a Cuban immigrant, uh, professor of economics at Princeton, who has done some incredibly interesting stuff about the distributional implications. The other thing of course is that these economic studies, so remember the very small long run per capita economic gain, don't take account of the loss of urban amenity, congestion costs, environmental pressures and the like, possibly house prices. Um, 
So I think if you were, and you know, I'm a great empiricist too, Glenn, if you added those up, there's no doubt in my mind that the economic impact would be significantly um, negative. The other thing is, and uh, I refer you to our, our, um, one, of our, one of CIS's best friends, Wolfgang Casper, was that the work, which I think was actually published um, uh, by CIS, on the importance of cultural integration by the immigrants in order to secure those economic benefits. And he did some very important work about the importance of cultural integration, um, which of course is made much more difficult if you have a really mass immigration program because they can form um, groups where integration is actually a practical alternative. Um, let me also refer to you the important work that Bob Birrell has done because people will say, you know, like the Yanks, it's probably the Prime Minister, the Yanks and um, the Yanks and the uh, Poms often say, oh, well, we love Australia's program because it's focused on skills. But if you look at Bob Birrell's work, what he's saying is that the skilled aren't really that skilled. And in fact, it, the proportion of um, for example, overseas graduates from non-English speaking backgrounds who hold professional jobs in Australia, they're immigrants, um, compared with local graduates or English speaking immigrants who hold degrees, it's about double. So it's about 75% for locals and English speakers and about 39% for uh, um, immigrants with, with degrees and who... Um, who uh, uh, have uh, graduated here and have stayed on as immigrants. <clears throat> the final point I would make, and you know, Glenn uh, quotes that study about, oh look, we'll you know, all move around and there'll be all these great big GDP gains for the world, is that there's sort of a morality issue actually, I think, about Australia's skill migration program. We're saying, oh, it's really good for us, but we can uh, suck the skilled workforce out of these poorer countries. I've always thought that was sort of a rather strange attitude. And I know there have been instances where uh, I think there were a lot of nurses that were taken out of Africa to uh, populate the NHS and that morality argument was taken up. So it seems to me that that is also an interesting angle that, you know, uh, we claim to have a skilled program, which we probably don't as much as we think, but it's fine to sap those skills from countries which might actually benefit from them. So thanks very much. Judith, uh, thank you very much. Our next speaker is Adam Crichton from the Australian newspaper. Uh, thanks very much, Tom, um, for having me here. It's a, it's a great privilege to be on the stage with such an esteemed panel and I'll say rather daunting to, to follow Judith Sloan in a debate. Um, I have to be a little bit cheeky. I note uh, Judith said that we're out of whack with the, with the rest of the world on our immigration rates. We're also out of the whack on our dividend imputation policy too. Uh, but and I don't hear her argument there. But just, 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 just on that uh, issue of population growth, yes, it's true. It's 1.6% is our rate of population growth in this country. It is, I think, the second highest in the OECD, I think just after New Zealand, or at least uh, most recently that was the case. But I mean, it's also important to remember that, you know, the base, our population isn't especially high. And so any, any sort of raw figure is obviously going to be uh, a large percentage of the, of the existing uh, population. If you go back through Australian history, and I know it's a long time, but it's still just worth illustrating, just to put it in context. In the 1850s, just in that one decade, our population tripled. And of course, it was a very small base, but you know, we can have, you know, we have experienced very fast growth, and you know, survived. The 50s and 60s, of course, we had a much faster 
uh, rate of population growth for you know uh, for 20 years uh, than we do now roughly. And uh, I'll also point out that our current kind of immigration uh, quota of 190,000 a year has actually been fixed at that level for about four years. So it's already the case that it's shrinking slowly. And that's all, that's all our side is advocating here, just that we, that we hold the current absolute level. And if, of course, if you do hold the current absolute level, then the growth rate will, of course, uh, shrink over time. That's just basic mathematics. And so that is, that is the side uh, that we're arguing here. The, the second point that I wanted to make, uh, just, just, just by way of opening, is, um, is to really deny that this is just so unpopular all of a sudden, that, you know, that a high rate of immigration growth is so unpopular. Now, I think you saw earlier Bob Carr talk about you know, something like 74% or 70% of Australians are massively against uh, kind of higher immigration, but he's basing that on a, on a very loaded survey uh, run by an institute, which of course, and it's a, it's a common uh, tactic of institutes when they want a particular answer in a survey, is they, you know, they have a fact which sounds scary and then they ask, the uh, person, you know, what they think about this, and this is a classic case of that. In fact, if you look at the Scanlon Foundation or, or various surveys um, that ANU has uh, conducted or the Lowy Institute, you'll pretty much find that the portion of Australians who are for lower immigration has been static at a around a third. I'm not saying that's small, but it's, it's a third. It's not 75% it's not and it's been static around that for, for quite some time. So, so just, just those, those kind of first two points I wanted to make just to kind of deny the issue in the first place as being something we should be so worried about. But, um, but the reason that some people think it is an issue, I think, and they're mistaken in this regard, is that it's you know, dragging down our wages. Well, you know, wage growth is slow pretty much in every country in the world. It's got nothing to do with Australia. It's a, it's a universal uh, phenomenon at the moment. I think it's got extremely a little to do uh, with our immigration uh, rate. And secondly, of course, house prices. You know, the, the, uh, the perennial Australian issue. Well, asset prices have, have soared around the world. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the rate of immigration, really. I mean, maybe slightly at the margin, but, you know, the, the huge fall in interest rates around the world, which again, you know, you can argue is artificial, uh, kind of induced by government, but that has, seen, that has seen house prices and stock prices soar, and that's created all sorts of problems. But we can't blame the rate of immigration for that. Um, so, but, but certainly that's, not to deny that, that a bigger population does uh, lead to, uh, you know, to greater congestion. I think you know, this is what's driving some of this. I mean, uh, Sydney and Melbourne in particular are getting bigger. And this is increasing uh, commute times and so forth. And this is making people angry. And this is why it's a political issue. But I would rather say, look, let's, you know, let's focus on the problems and deal with that, deal with those problems. And they're not trivial problems. I mean, Judith's right. You know, we are bad at this, and it's you know, it's no point just being kind of hand wavy and saying, oh well, you know, we'll fix it. I mean, these are these are major issues about you know how our state governments plan, how they build. But I think it's better as a country if we focus on fixing those rather than rather than halving the rate of our immigration growth, which which I might add is a, is a would be a big shock to the economy. I mean, that really hasn't happened. I mean, the last time we had an immigration rate like half what it currently is, uh, sorry, population growth rate was the 1930s, I believe, and of course. Yeah, that was the depression. I mean, you find that when a, you know, when uh, an economy is going well, uh, when a country is going well, of course its population is going to grow rapidly, and so it's a vote of confidence in this country that we have such a high population growth rate it's because people want to live here. It's a great place to live. You know, we've been a capital importing country for a very long time, and so if you're going to import capital, you have to import people too. I mean, you can't you can't just keep having the capital, and you know, kind of kind of choke off the people. That 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 doesn't work. Um, you know, you and I, I and uh, so so the issue I think you know, you know the solution to this to this kind of simmering angst I think is really to have better planning and better density. I mean, it's it's just atrocious how how bad it is in this country. Um, you know, for instance, uh, you know the the factoid I always use in my columns. I've used it quite a few times now, and I find it remarkable. But you know, we have in the last twelve months 
uh, to November last year. There were 44 new dwellings were approved. That's uh, homes and apartments, dwellings, in, in, in uh, the eastern suburbs, Wallara, 44. That's all, right? There's a population of 60,000 there and only 44 new homes were allowed by zoning. Whereas in Parramatta, it was 4,500, right? I mean, that is, that's just extraordinary. I mean, on so many levels, that's extraordinary. I mean, you know, if you go to any other major city in the world, even the poshest parts will have four and five storeys as large swathes of those areas. I mean, I'm sure you've been to Kensington and Chelsea, for instance. You know, you know that is not just freestanding houses. Um, so if we have a more sensible zoning policy and we increase the uh, number of storeys that are allowed in some of the inner ring suburbs, and yes, including some of the posh ones, you know, I hate to say, those ones too, uh, you know, we can have a higher population rate, uh, uh, you know, stable population, and plus it also brings down the cost of infrastructure, right? Because you don't need to have so many train stations, you know, you can run the tr trains more frequently and so forth. Um, now this obviously costs money, but you know, it's, we, we have to, well, <laughs> um, but, uh, Oh yes, and I just wanted to, so, so there's a study of the density of Australian cities. 50, 50 of the biggest cities in Australia, Canada, New Zealand and Europe. And of course the bottom three, 48, 49 and 50, are Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane, right? That's just extraordinary. I mean, we shouldn't be at the very bottom of that list, right? I mean, are we really saying that all of those other, all those other 48 cities, Madrid and Barcelona, all these places are terrible? I mean, it's, they're not. Indeed, we want to visit them all the time. People have very satisfying lives there and they want to go there. Um, so, but look, look. I want to kind of finish. I assume I'm about four or five minutes now. Um, that, and just saying that economics is not going to answer this question. I mean, there's, it's, it is not going to provide an answer to this question. You know, the answer to this question of what our population growth rate should be is about our vision for the country and what we, you know, what we like. And look, you know, I'm willing to concede I like big cities. You know, I mean, that's that's my bias. I think they're I think they're exciting. I think Australia needs big, uh, powerful cities if it's going to be of any relevance in the 21st century. Frankly, I mean, I do worry that what's happened to Adelaide is going to happen to Melbourne and Sydney on a larger scale if we if we close off people and we try to, you know, shrink the relative size of those cities, Australia is not going to be relevant, especially in a region like we're in, right? I mean, what sort of message does that send to the rest of the world, um, especially at this rather precarious time, if we shrink our population growth rate? One more thing. So Julia Gillard in 2010, she wrote in The Australian that we don't want a big Australia, we want a sustainable Australia, right? And of course she won an election. Of course that was code for slowing the rate of population growth, right? Obviously. Well, so, and so what happened? In 2010, uh, the norm was 172,000, that's net overseas migration, then it was 205, and then it was 225. So, so the point is, it doesn't really matter what our politicians say about this. The reality is they're really gonna struggle to control our population growth. Thanks. Adam, thank you. Adam, thank you. Our next speaker is the former leader of the Australian Labor Party and a regular contributor to the Alan Jones Show, Mark Latham. Well, thanks very much, Tom, ladies and gentlemen. And I must say, Tom Switzer, you're an incredibly brave person because you're hosting an immigration debate and issues of ethnic integration in Australia on International Harmony Day. <laughs> now, there's an international day for everything, of course, but I worry on International Harmony Day that when we get through the full debate without Tim Suit Fomasan and his 18C stormtroopers <laughs> bursting through the door to close us down in this era of dreadful hate speech, things that just can't be said, let's hope we get through the full debate. Uh, my starting proposition is to say that economic rationalists should support big cuts to Australia's immigration program for the sake of wages growth, for the sake of housing affordability, for the sake of productivity, for the sake of urban efficiency. And Adam, I um, just let you know of a little rule I used to have, having lived in Western Sydney for 50 years and heard the eternal promise of better planning. I used to have the scream rule about people who gave us better planning. And I've now moved on to the garrot rule 
I always um, remember the way in which Gareth Evans said he wanted to garrote Bronwyn Bishop in the Senate one night and uh, for people who tell us in Western Sydney better planning will solve all our problems after 50 years I too have the garrote rule about people who promise that because for 50 years we have heard how better services, better planning would end the congestion, end the paucity of infrastructure, end the paucity of services and it never happens. It never happens for the basic reason that the elites pushing for Big Australia are way out of touch with the realities of suburban life. And in quoting the elitism, I might as well start with the most elite of the elites, Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, and his offside of Lucy Turnbull, because <laughs> who increasingly makes policy in these areas, because on ABC Radio in March 2016, Malcolm Turnbull said, and it's related to his Big Australia immigration policy, this is the simple concept that most of people's day-to-day -day work, education, shopping or recreational activities should be located within 30 minutes of walking, cycling or public commuting from their home. Now I missed the 30-minute city test today that everything should be within 30 minutes travel of where you live. I left home at 9.45 on the outskirts of southwest Sydney and got here at 11.45. So I don't live in a 120-minute city. Uh, I live in... I, I, uh, sorry, I don't live in the 30-minute city that Malcolm Turnbull advocates. I live in a 120-minute city and there's a big number of people in those circumstances because of Sydney's gross urban inefficiency. Now, a fortnight after Malcolm Turnbull said these things in March 2016, Lucy Turnbull echoed them, echoed them in an article in The Weekend Australian in her position as the Chief Commissioner, the Chief Commissioner of the Greater Sydney Commission. So unfortunately, in terms of urban efficiency and big Australia migration, Malcolm and Lucy have become to this policy area what Joe and Flo were to good governance in Queensland. <laughs> and we are feeling the adverse impacts. The, Lucy's Greater Sydney Commission has said that Sydney will accommodate another 1.8 million people over the next 18 years. That is nearly uh, an extra million people per annum. In April 2017, the city's minister, Angus Taylor, said already 2 million people call Western Sydney home and that will increase by another million in the next 20 years. And this has given rise to the concept that I describe as the upside-down city. I can remember in the 1970s with the centre and radial spoke system in Sydney and other Australian cities that everyone consumed the most, assumed that the most congested spot was in the middle. The centre of the cities were congested. Well these days you can put down a picnic blanket and have a nice little morning tea on the cross city tunnel under the middle of uh, Sydney CBD. Meanwhile the congestion has gone to the urban fringe. It's upside down now. The congestion is on the urban fringe while the centre of the city moves much more efficiently. And that uh, outer ring uh, inefficiency has a massive economic cost. Uh, because of the migration program, no sooner are uh, roads like Norellan Road, Camden Valley Way improved, new car parking stations are built at Leppington and Edmondson Park that um, uh, the congestion comes six months later. No sooner are these new facilities built that they're crowded again because of immigration and population growth. I invite anyone who talks about better planning to go to Oran Park Public School in southwest Sydney where, with the wonders of better planning out of the state government bureaucracy, they have 24 demountable classrooms. Three rows of eight lined up. It looks like Manus Island. <laughs> All those lefties in Glebe and Paddington to complain about Manus Island, we'll have a look at the one that exists under the banner of better planning at Oran Park Public School in southwest Sydney. So there are huge livability 
and urban efficiency costs to this crazy policy of extra population growth fuelled by big Australia migration. On top of that, our ethnic and uh, immigration settlement policies are atrocious. I always look at the promise we had in New South Wales when the state took the uh, 7,000 of the special Syrian refugee intake. Uh, they went to the trouble of appointing Peter Shergold, formerly of Prime Minister's Department, to be the Commissar for Refugee Settlement. And he said, oh, they'll live in Coffs Harbour, they'll live in Albury, they'll live in Wagga. 6,000 of the 7,000 in New South Wales went to one local government area, Fairfield. Fairfield in Western Sydney. And the problems of integration and service delivery, Fairfield has the highest unemployment rate in New South Wales. You know, I've, I did a survey, a couple of surveys recently in the um, uh, town centre of Fairfield and 90% of people there don't speak English. Now, if this is the promise of multiculturalism, I, I, I support multiculturalism, but on the basis that people can speak to each other and have got national language of English so we can communicate, build bonds of support and trust and social capital, that's the only way in which multiculturalism can work. But the program of immigration is so big and the settlement programs are so flawed that we haven't got effective ethnic integration. We've got the development of ethnic enclaves. Now, further on this question of uh, economic impacts, wage stagnation is a factor around the world, but you can be guaranteed in Australia it's being driven by the flooding of the labour market. We have wage stagnation in Australia, the paucity of wages growth, because the labour market's been flooded with the big immigration program and we haven't got productivity growth. One of the reasons we haven't got productivity growth in Australia is it's so convenient now for the politicians in Canberra to adopt a policy whereby two-thirds of economic growth each year comes from immigration, comes from the population growth. Tony Abbott is blowing the whistle on this. He talked to some of the Treasury officials when he was Prime Minister about cutting the immigration program and they said, Prime Minister, you can't do that. That's two-thirds of our economic growth number. That's two-thirds of our employment numbers. So it's very convenient for politicians to rely on immigration as an artificial flawed way of boosting those raw GDP and employment numbers and it lets them off the hook in terms of microeconomic reform, in terms of efficiency, in terms of productivity. So we've got the worst of both worlds. We've got a flooded labour market driving down wages and we've got a political system relying on immigration as an artificial way of, de of developing economic growth that uh, ignores all the need for efficiency and micro-reform. So too on the housing affordability crisis. We're obviously bringing in so many people into Australia each year increases the demand for housing and drives up the prices. So the scale of immigration in Australia is massive. It's absolutely massive. The difference between the current program, around 200,000 a year, and going back to the 20th century average of 70,000, uh, involves tens of millions of people extra coming into Australia over the next 20 or 30 years. And it's reshaping our country in a way that's bad for our cities, that's bad for our wages growth, that's bad for our housing affordability, that's bad for our economic efficiency. I agree with Judith Sloan in saying that the purpose of Australia's economic uh, strategy in terms of migration must be to do the things that are right for the people who live here now. I'm glad I missed the Peter Martin article, <laughs> article from Mars saying that we owe the rest of the world our social licence of uh, assistance because they never give any of that to us. So the purpose of our immigration policy must be to do the things that are right for the people who live here now rather than the fantasy that we owe things to the rest of the world 
We have a humanitarian program. It doesn't work very well in terms of settlement, but in terms of owing things, we owe it to the people who live in the congested cities, on the crowded streets, in the rotten, demountable um, classrooms at Oran, places like Oran Park. And we owe it to wages growth, housing affordability and productivity in this country to reduce the immigration intake back to the 20th century average of 70,000 a year. That would be the smart thing for our country and it's a thing that every single economic rationalist in this room should support. Mark, thank you. Uh, now it's time uh, for Q&A and our first question comes from Andrew Stone, who among other things is a former economics advisor to Prime Minister Abbott. Andrew. Thanks, Tom. Um, I just wanted, if I could perhaps state a, just a few facts to put my questions um, to, the, to the pro side into context. One thing that I was struck in this discussion by is that nobody put into context when we're talking about cutting immigration that this has to be seen in terms of a massive leap in immigration rates starting about a decade ago. So in the decade to mid-2006, net overseas migration to Australia was a total of 1.1 million people. In the subsequent decade, it was 2.2 million people. So the net immigration rate doubled during that period. Now, if that's supposed to be good for growth, one could refer to the statistic that GDP per capita in that prior decade grew by 2.3% per annum. In the subsequent decade, it grew by 0.9% per annum. So it was two and a half times faster in the prior uh, decade. What's more, the government does control this. The permanent migration target as recently as 2000-2001 was only 76,000. Yet we were told, Adam assured us, and he's, he's correct, for the last few years it's been 190,000. But nevertheless, that has to be seen in context. That was massively ratcheted up around mid-2006. As we went into the mining boom, that was the rationale, and there was some rationale for that at the time. But the question is why it hasn't come back down. And so that leads me to, to my um, questions here, as I say, all for the, for the pro side of the panel. Um, first of all, in view of that, that fact that in that prior decade, net overseas migration was 1.1 million, uh, there was a, a total um, uh, increase in jobs of about 1.8 million during that period, so unemployment rate was able to come down a long way. In, that, in the subsequent decade, we've had 2.2 million migrants, but only 1.7 million jobs created. How can it possibly be, if you believe in supply and demand in the labour market, that you think that hasn't affected wages? So that's one question. Secondly, if you've added, just in terms of the increase in migration, you've added more than a million extra people per decade, there are roughly, on average, two and a half people per household, and that's pretty true across immigrants and locals. That translates to an additional demand for about 400,000 plus houses. Now, in this last decade, we've only built in total about one, point one and a third million houses. So if we added more than 400,000 to demand, again, how can that possibly not have affected prices? Third question, um, this is something tongue-in-cheek to Glenn Withers. You were saying if we, if we allowed everybody to move around, you could double global per capita GDP. Um, I'm not familiar with how much Australian per capita GDP is above the global average. So can you tell me how much of a reduction in Australian per capita GDP that would be? And um, perhaps I'll, I'll stop there. Three questions there. Um, and I encourage all the panellists to come to the lectern when they answer them. Who wants to go first? Glenn, do you want to do the last one first? Uh, yeah. Yes, on, on the global calculation, of course, it's a factoid calculation. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the realities are what I call the elephant in the room. That is, uh, social integration is a hell of a lot harder than moving uh, people around compared to moving trade around is enough. Investment causes problems. People movement have serious integration issues that you have to manage uh, appropriately. 
Uh, on the, uh, the appropriate uh, levels, though, for GDP growth in Australia, there's probably about 50 studies that find that it has a either small positive effect, and they usually have a very flawed methodology of using computer-general equilibrium models, don't allow for economies of scale, don't allow for agglomeration effects, don't allow for the quality of labour. When you do the actual numbers rather than these models, where you actually calculate what the relationship is between uh, immigration and population numbers and uh, GDP per capita, you find a bigger uh, positive effect. You also find it uh, a significant effect for domestic labour, not just for the migrants. And in particular, you find it benefits the least skilled in Australia of the domestic workers. Because what you're doing in Australia's system, as opposed to the Boerhaas stuff, which is a very different system, in Australia when you're bringing in a whole lot of skilled labour, the competition is actually with our best, uh, our, our most well-off uh, workers. The unskilled are the complements to those well-off workers and actually they're benefited in wages from the migration flow. So it's actually inclusive growth that comes through the, the migration uh, arena. But I wanted to make one more point, which is these studies also show, because a lot of the previous analysis is what you call linear, it just assumes that migration always has the same effect no matter how big, how small, whatever. Uh, and then some say it's little and some say it's big. In fact, when you get a bit more sophisticated and look at whether it makes a difference how big the migration is, how fast the rate is, uh, compared to the pre-existing uh, circumstance, you find if you drop it too low, it has a big drop in per capita income. But if you take it too high, it has a drop in per capita income. So getting the balance right is the crucial thing. When you go too far, all the, all the uh, congestion effects and, and uh, short, uh, problems uh, of the labour market and housing affordability kick in. But if you go too low, you cause the demand for the uh, economy's outputs to fall too much, too, especially too quickly if you do it fast. So there's a, there's a middle point, and we had it during the GFC. One of the reasons we've had uh, a period of expansion for 26 years uh, compared to just about every other OECD country. The only one that hasn't had a recession in 26 years is not just the brilliance of our Treasury officials or our Reserve Bank governors. It is actually a sustained, solid underpinning of growth of population that underpins in turn the animal spirits of our business investors who kept business running in Australia throughout that period. And uh, there is a, a GDP effect alongside a GDP per capita effect. Okay, uh, Adam Crichton. Uh, thanks, Andrew. You made some really good points. Um, yeah, we certainly have to see the immigration uh, flows in their context, their historical context. I agree with that. But to arbitrarily compare the decade to 06 and the decade to 2016, I just don't think that we can infer, you know, from just two or three variables, the role of immigration in that kind of in that period. I mean, I, you know, it, it's very interesting that that we grew so rapidly per capita in that decade to 2006. I mean, I would argue that was because the financial system kind of unleashed itself and borrowed a lot, leveraged everything up, and then, of course, it crashed in 08, and then there was you know, five or six years of pretty much nothing much happening around the world, and we're still kind of living with the after-effects of that. So I don't know if I'd, if I'd blame the respective rates of immigration for those uh, for those two phenomena. But just, but just on the more general point, I mean, surely intuitively, you know, new workers create as much uh, demand, you know, to offset the, you know, the jobs that that they take, so to speak. I mean, after the Second World War, there was all great concern that when the soldiers came back, they'd all be unemployed. But of course, the labour market just just absorbed them very rapidly because all those soldiers, you know, create a demand for goods and services, and then they, you know, they they fill the jobs that, that supply the goods and services. So I mean, 
logically, it's not like there's a, there's a, there's a lump of labour, you know, that, isn't it the lump of labour fallacy or something like that, where there's just a certain number of jobs to go around and, and you know, these, and, uh, you know, the wages are depressed. I mean, I don't understand the wages depression argument. I mean, I'm sure if you did a regression across countries with immigration rates and so forth, you, you know, you wouldn't see, you know, larger countries with, with you know, um, lower wages or actually maybe you would with China and India, but if you, if you took all that, abstracting from all that, uh, you know, purely because of their because of their size. Um, and just a more general point, just on investment, um, and Glenn just made me think of it. I mean, the, the investment of the 20th century is gonna, be, is gonna be intellectual property investment. I mean, less and less it's about machines and buildings. I mean, we're seeing the official rates of investment fall, not just in Australia, but around the world. And where does that sort of investment happen? It happens in cities because of the agglomeration effects of bright people living around each other and talking to each other. It's not big factories anymore. Um, that's, that's, that's gone by the wayside. You know, the, region, the reason that the world's smartest people gravitate to London and New York is because of you know those those phenomena, right? Um, so you know we we're, we're either part of that or not. Okay, we, we can say all right, we just want Sydney and Melbourne to be medium kind of second tier cities in the world, or we can say no, 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 we'd like them to be you know the very very top tier of cities. And you know you may laugh, but I reckon by 20, 30 years, if we maintain these rates of growth, you know, Sydney will be as big as London, or it could be, and as powerful, probably more so because this country has so many more resources than than, than the United Kingdom does. Anyway. Let me uh, turn to the negative side and uh, follow up from what Adam and Glenn uh, raised, and that is the question of our 27-year economic expansion. Uh, this is in the, um, a recent issue of Forbes magazine. Quote, since the early 1990s, Australia's economy has powered ahead with a 3.0 rate of compound economic growth. Take out population growth of 1.4%, and the economy has only grown around 1.6% per year in per capita terms. Judith, respond. Um, well, I guess that's my argument, isn't it? That if you want to look at the economic impact of immigration, you have to look at per capita. So we can boast about our 26 years of constant growth. Um, in fact, if you want to look at per capita income, we've actually had two recessions because there were two periods when uh, per capita GDP went uh, negative in successive quarters. So um, it, it really, um, I mean, I think it's two issues. It's like, you know, it's an empirical issue and I think we should do, I agree with Glenn to the extent that I think we need to carefully add this up. But I think it is, um, it, it is also, and I remember doing a lot about economics, at the end of the day, put aside the economic arguments, this is about what kind of country we want to look like, right? I don't want to look like your country. I mean, of course, I'll be dead, but I've got children. I don't want to be London. I don't want to be New York. I don't regard the fact that Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane are nice, you know, laid out spatial cities. I think that's a good thing. So it, it's really a matter of acknowledging that there is a distribution of preferences out there. And there are a lot of people who actually object to the notion that we should all be herded into sort of dog boxes in high-rise apartment buildings. Now. <laughs> okay, next questions. Yes, sir. The, um, Just wait for the mic, sir, this one. The uh, permanent visa limit is what is set by the federal government. The net overseas migration reflects the so-called demand um, impact of uh, the demand in terms of skills 
which started with the start of the mining boom, is supposed to sort of regulate the demand in the economy. The issue is that a lot of these skills or demand-driven visas essentially now have pathways to permanent visas, which creates one other problem that you have this million plus people on temporary visas trying to come through this funnel of 190,000, uh, which is set in the budget each year, which, which Judith uh, rustles back to the back of the budget papers to find. My question, my, qu my question really relates to the uh, responsibility of states to actually deliver, deliver the infrastructure. The state complains about the issue of building the schools, and building, building the, equip the, uh, the infrastructure for this population growth. Should the, can I ask the panel, shouldn't the states, through COAG, have some influence on that level of permanent immigration and also the, uh, the, the drivers for this uh, demand uh, level of immigration? The question is about the states, the role of the state governments in controlling immigration. Glenn? Yeah. Just like on, just like on immigration, on federalism, I, I wasn't a great enthusiast for either immigration or, or for federalism until I started to look at the evidence. I'm one of these people who actually doesn't know what my mind is until I actually investigate something quite often. Uh, and I used to, as a sixth generation Australian, I, I wasn't all that fussed about immigration. It wasn't a big deal in me or my family. Similarly in Federation, being a Canberran, I thought that uh, the states were terrible things and, and that they were really incompetent and they had all these corrupt people and so on. Uh, when I looked at these things closely, I discovered that A, um, I, I began to think more kindly about immigration, B, I began to think more kindly about Federation. And indeed the two are connected. Uh, in Australia, we have the greatest first vertical fiscal imbalance between the, the revenue raising responsibilities of the states relative to their spending responsibilities. And that just makes for a very confused federation compared to best practice federations like Germany or Switzerland uh, or Canada. And uh, for fixing this up, in making sure we can help with the congestion problems, with the infrastructure problems that we have to fix up, a conditionality could be posed upon immigration that would be part of uh, a bigger reform movement. We have to have a package of reform. It includes the Harper-style competition reforms, it includes uh, infrastructure reform with uh, the states raising much more of their own uh, revenues rather than relying upon the Commonwealth. And indeed, when you look at the underlying calculations, a federalism reform is probably the single best payoff for reform in the country for our future per capita income. Uh, but we're talking today about immigration as such. But to me, behind immigration is the tax reform problem, Ken Henry style, and the uh, federalism reform requirements, which the politicians steer mightily clear of, but are really fundamental to fixing up Australia to be able to manage immigration and population so much better than we do. We do, we do pretty well. We could do even better. Uh, Judith, is um, Glenn Withers' counter-argument plausible? Uh, well, I'm not sure what your argument was, actually, again, but... Um, OK. You're making a very good point, OK? Let me just... Excuse me for being didactic. There is the migration program. They're the 190,000 permanent migrants that we allow in each year. 
Then there's something called the net overseas migration, and that includes temporary migrants. And if anyone's entitled to be here or has lived here for uh, 12 of the past 16 months, they're included in those statistics. There's no point talking about history when it comes to our migration program because we never had temporary migrants. We only had temp we've only had temporary migrants in the past 10 to 15 years. Who were the temporary migrants? They're the international students. The they're the 457 visa holders now called something else. They're the working holiday makers, the backpackers and the like, and they are very substantial numbers. So the net overseas migration, okay, we've got 190,000 permanents coming in. The most recent NOM, net overseas migration, is nearly 250,000. And these are people who, who put pressure on resources, right? They're, they're not staying here for, they're not tourists, okay? They're staying here often for four years. And your point is absolutely right. What is the motivation of a lot of these temporary migrants? To stay here forever, okay? Now, what is the problem with the temporary migration pro program? It's legion, actually. But the real point is that it is the gateway to permanent migration and it is an uncapped program, okay? We don't cap the number of 457 visa holders, we don't cap the number of international students. We might have a bit of a cap, I think, maybe on the working holiday makers by country, but by and large, it's not a cap program, which is one of the reasons this is out of control, right? Why, can we put the states into the uh, decision making for migration numbers? The states are in on this conspiracy. The New South Wales government, so there's a little regional program, uh, part of the, um, the permanent migration. The New South Wales government, which has got so many people, the place is bursting at the seams, they're bringing in extra people through the migrant. And who are they bringing in? They're bringing in accountants and in auditors because we haven't got enough accountants and auditors, evidently. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. But do you know why they're in on it? Because it pushes up housing prices. They are addicted to the uh, stamp duty revenue and they don't want to see that go away. They are very dependent on stamp duty revenue, absent the stuff they get from Canberra. And so I wouldn't be holding your breath. I wouldn't bother putting the states on because I think you just probably get as bad an outcome. <coughs> when uh, Tony Abbott recently called for slashing uh, immigration levels, he was overwhelmingly rebuked by his fellow colleagues, including his former ministerial colleagues. Uh, one young Liberal, uh, president of the Australian Young Liberals, uh, took to the pages of the Sydney Morning Herald to point out the perils of the pro former Prime Minister's policy. Harry Stutchbury. Ah. Uh, uh, so by 2055, there'll be 2.7 people, uh, people of working age for each retiree. Currently, that number is 4.5 and was in 1975, it was 7.3. Uh, surely we need something, some sort of internal injection of people to maintain a proper balance for our budgetary structure going forward. It doesn't matter. It doesn't worry the Japanese. Uh, hang on, hang on. Uh, okay, the question is to uh, either Mark Latham or Judith. Mark? Well, Harry, the argument for extra migration because of ageing is the Ponzi scheme that you bring the extra migrants in to marginally lower the average age of the Australian population, the migrants get older and then you're going to bring more migrants in. 
and the Productivity Commission found in July of last year immigration delays rather than eliminates population ageing. Ultimately, the only solution to an ageing population in economic terms is enhanced productivity by the people who are working, as well as allowing the aged folk to work longer. So if you think the Ponzi scheme is a solution, it's just part of the artificiality of this, that policymakers in Canberra are used to the idea that per capita economic growth is low, the headline GDP figures pumped up with immigration, and so too arguing about ageing when you develop the Ponzi scheme, which is never ending. You know, Australia just ends up 100 million people, and you're just trying to hold back the flood of uh, ageing demographics in a very artificial, flawed manner that again, time after time, lets the politicians off the hook on the main game, which is economic reform, micro-reform, productivity, efficiency, all the things they can avoid because they point to the headline GDP figure, safe in the knowledge that it's been pumped up by the immigration scheme. See, all roads lead to problems in the immigration program. Every single economic issue and livability issue in this country leads down to the immigration path. And there are so many vested interests holding back common sense public policy. And I'm afraid on the ageing, that's just another example. Okay, we've got, um, we've got time for uh, at least one, maybe two more questions. Uh, the former Treasury Secretary, uh, uh, sorry, so former Secretary to the Commonwealth Treasury, John Stone. Um, I'm not quite sure whether I'm addressing this to both sides or merely to the to the to the con side, because it, but two things struck me about the prior discussion, namely the omission of any reference to uh, attitudes in other countries towards uh, immigration. And the second thing, there wasn't even a mention of, uh, well, actually Glenn did sort of touch on it by his reference to, I've forgotten the precise term he used, but uh, I was going to say that the thing we're missing is any reference to crime. Now, uh, if you look at the first one of those, Brexit was at least half, with perhaps more than half, due to a feeling of absolute rage on the part of the British population, or large part of the British population, about the fact that there were so many people coming to the country and changing the nature of the country in a way they didn't like. Um, Angela Merkel had been more or less thrown out of office. She hasn't yet quite left office, but she's on her way out as a result of what she did a few years ago with allowing in million, a million or a million and a half, I think it was, in one year, uh, people from Syria and other assorted places. Uh, there's been a backlash in Austria, a backlash in Hungary, a backlash in, po in Poland, at the point where, in fact, none of those countries are, are agreeing to take any of these migrants which the EU has attempted to parcel out among European Union members, and, in fact, they're actually suing Poland on those grounds. Uh, so, and, of course, the most recent example, uh, the election in Italy, where uh, one of the most successful parties, the one which wanted to get rid of all immigration. So I'm surprised that nobody sort of made any mention of that. Uh, or suggested that perhaps, you know, is the world mad or are we the only sane ones? <laughs> um, the second thing, in relation to crime, all of those, uh, all of those, uh, well, particularly, I was just looking at something the other day about Germany, the incidence of rape in that country now is ballooned out of sight. And, and that's despite the fact that German police are under orders not to, not to include it in their statistics unless the... Um, the uh, uh, person, the woman, affected, 
uh, actually decides to press charges. They say that, in fact, the number of reported rapes in that sense is about 10% of the number that actually occur. That's not happening by accident. It happened because of the nature of the migration program. And uh, if you want a topic for another day, Tom, related but not the same, I suggest you uh, have a topic about the composition of immigration, not just the level of immigration or the rate of immigration, but the composition of immigration. I think that would be extremely interesting. So my question is, um, any of you any comments on failing to mention any of those things? Um, let's uh, hear from one representative of each side. First to Adam, and on that note, Adam is representing the affirmative case here for a big Australia and a big immigration policy. But intriguingly, Adam, and I can ask this because Adam's a former colleague of mine at The Spectator, we're keeping each other honest. Uh, Adam wrote in the Australian newspaper last year a very important front page story on why he hoped that Marine Le Pen would win the French presidential election. So if you supported Le Pen on France and her cuts to immigration, why now are you supporting, um, largely on the issues that John raised on. <laughs> if you supported uh, Le Pen uh, last year in the lead up to the May federal uh, national election on the issue of crime and immigration, why now are you supporting big levels of immigration for our country? Thanks, Tom, and also John. Great questions, and uh, fair enough for picking me up on that. Well, look, uh, <laughs> no, no, well, I, it's not an inconsistency. Of course, I'm going to say it's not an inconsistency. I mean, uh, Judith mentioned earlier that uh, you know, New South Wales was bursting at the seams, but you know, New South Wales is bigger than France, right, in in square meters, and it, it's uh, you know France has 66 million people, right, in it. So that's so. My point being is that the two two countries are at a very different stage of their growth and their development and they're also historically very very different as well and it goes to the composition and I completely agree with John about composition in fact the article I wrote in the Australian a few Saturdays ago which enraged uh, people who are for a big Australia had actually that the composition is an issue and that is what is the real problem I mean uh, crime generally speaking just now to go to that has been falling in most Western countries I mean this is this is the pinker argument right I mean there's been a remarkable fall in crime rates, right? I mean, as, as much as the media likes to beat certain things up, and that's that's its job, that's what it does, you've got to sell papers. But but I think the objective crime rates, and of course there are, there are always problems with, you know, measurement and whether crimes are being reported and all that, but I think I th the conventional wisdom is that crime rates are falling. But there have been some upticks, as you say, Germany, uh, maybe parts of Australia, and I think this is because of the composition, this is because of the cultural backgrounds of some of the immigrants. I think the support for the migration program in Australia would be much higher if the composition were changed. I mean, but, we're at a state in this country where you can't say things publicly like that. I mean, it's a risk even going anywhere near it. So, hence, there won't be a debate about that. But well, that's that's not my decision, John. As you know, I'm just just a mere just a mere economics correspondent. But um, no, but but my support for um, for Marine Le Pen was on you know, not just about immigration. Just just I mean, I thought. I saw her as a disruptive force, which I think would have been very good for France and Europe overall. And and uh, you know, and uh, the alternative, of course, is important. You know, the alternative is an ex-investment banker who doesn't believe in anything, and that's that's the current president of France. So that's that's why I supported Marine Le Pen. Okay, uh, Mark Latham. Well, I've got to say, when I saw Adam's name on the affirmative team, given his support for Marine Le Pen, I thought it was a typo. <laughs> But, uh, John, on Harmony Day, you have invited the ultimate 18C question, of course, about uh, the uh, composition of the migration program and observable truths about what different ethnic groups bring to Australia. 
And I'd make two points, one in terms of comparison to European nations, they by and large lost control of their borders and there's been an understandable backlash. Australia's lucky as an island continent, unless you have a brain snap like the Rudd and Gillard governments with an efficient navy, you should be able to turn the boats back and maintain control of your borders. So that's a geographic difference with Australia that's important and at times when the borders um, become porous, uh, public support in all forms of immigration is in jeopardy. Uh, the other aspect where Australia's been fortunate is that a large share of our immigration program over the last 30 or 40 years has been Asian. And the um, Confucian and um, Chinese work ethic in Australia has been magnificent. Uh, studying hard in the schools, blitzing it, beating my kids, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> then going through to university, parents driving their kids on. You know, it's the Australian aspiration and dream that I grew up with in the 70s. Parents who didn't necessarily know a lot about it but would drive on children through education into higher education, into better jobs and then work hard. And we have been blessed by that Asian contribution. Now, on the flip side, uh, an observable truth, Tim Soupy, get your pad and pen ready when this goes out online. <laughs> Census data shows that Muslim labour force participation rates in Australia are just 50%, well below the national figure, and their unemployment rate is twice the national average. I always tell people the true tale, I was there, I heard these things, that when I was Mayor of Liverpool in the early 1990s, different ethnic groups which were flooding into the municipality by virtue of big Australia uh, immigration, uh, we'd come and see the Mayor about uh, their different aspirations. The Asians would sit down and say, Mr Latham, Mr Latham, how can we set up a business and work hard in Liverpool? That would give them a big tick. The Italians would come in and say, uh, Mr Latham, Mr Latham, how can we pour more concrete and build more things? Uh, we came, we saw, we concreted and uh, <laughs> I'd tick that off and the Greeks would come in wanting to know how they could set up more small businesses and I'd give that a big tick and then the um, uh, Lebanese Muslim Association would come in and ask for how can we access public housing, a youth worker, a community hall, uh, council funds for our social work program. Now, uh, without getting myself in too much trouble, the intelligent people here can draw their own conclusions about those comparisons. There is an observable economic impact due to the composition of the migration program in Australia. In Australia, we haven't had the problems in Europe because of our geography and the Asian influence, what we have had is concentrated ethnic enclaves that have emerged mainly in safe labour seats, the redeeming feature of voting no on same-sex marriage in those uh, <laughs> electorates, but the ethnic enclave effect is hidden, hidden from the media, because journalists certainly don't live there, hidden in the political system because they're marginal seats, so no one visits during election campaigns, but the dislocation effects of dropping 6,000 Syrian refugees into Fairfield, the highest unemployment rate in, in New South Wales, you only need to go there to understand the nature of the enclave. And it's a betrayal of the Whitlam and Fraser uh, aspiration for genuine multiculturalism, where people talk to each other, get to know each other, pick up the best of the cultural habits of each other. And it's a betrayal of the Australian ethos of the fair go. It's had a devastating impact, largely hidden in the system, but one of our worst ever social justice problems and by virtue of being one of our worst ever social justice problems, the Greens and other left-wingers never talk about it. Okay, we are fast running out of time, but we have time for one more question, just finally. Tim James, quickly please, Tim. Thanks very much, Tom. I think a lot of the politics around this has to do with our quality of life and, and how we live. Now, 
Um, I grew up on a quarter acre block in Sydney and it was a fantastic source of discipline, health, safety, family, security, pride, frugality and so it goes on. I'm told these days as a parent of young children that to want to have a quarter acre block is greedy, unreasonable, unnecessary and even if you don't subscribe to those views, for most of us, out of reach. Why is it wrong for me to want for my family what I had as a child which was so beneficial for our family back then? Thanks. Okay, Glenn Withers. Uh, not at all wrong. Uh, we free marketeers here actually believe in people being able to realise the choices uh, they want. That comes back to our arguments about where the settlement patterns are, what are the uh, rules governing settlement patterns and the like, and we can improve a hell of a lot uh, on that. But one factor underlying the, the decline of the quarter acre block is not the immigration pressure on housing, it's also declining family size. That is when you were growing up, and certainly when I was growing up, we had families of four, five and six. Now we're down to families of one or two. So there's that sort of adjustment required in the nature of our, uh, our settlement processes and types of housing. We need the housing for all the types of people who need good housing. But there's a lot of obstacles in the way in, uh, in delivering on that uh, effectively. Uh, now, we won't improve that overnight, as we know. One of, one of the Bob Carr things that used to worry me was Bob uh, used to say uh, that, that Australia's full up from mountain to coast, and yet he'd refuse to amalgamate councils in Sydney who would allow better traffic to uh, come through by linking up proper roadway systems around Sydney. Jeff Kennett was far, a far better proposition. So you need a Kennett and not a car if you're going to improve things. Now, whether you get a Kennett rather than a car is in our hands as individuals and how we support the leadership we need to get a better, a better pact for the immigration bargain. Not just free-for-all immigration, but controlled uh, immigration that meets conditions for the good settlement of and the, and the welfare of the people of Australia. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, we at the Centre for Independent Studies like to distinguish ourselves uh, from the rancour and the rampant polarisation that all too often marks the public policy debate. And I think we've been treated here today uh, to two outstanding schools of thought representing both sides of a very important issue. Uh, please join me in thanking our panellists, Adam Crichton, Glenn Withers, <laughs> Judith Sloan and Mark Latham. And uh, I will take on notice former Treasury Secretary Stone's uh, suggestion of a, another debate on the issue of composition. These are issues that should be discussed openly without inspiring mass hysteria, as all too often happens. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. We hope to see you again. Just a quick footnote. Uh, we at CIS are not subsidised by any tax dollars. We only exist because of the generosity of our members. If you're not a member and you enjoyed today, please uh, feel free to join uh, the CIS membership. There are some forms to fill out. And uh, we hope to see you again. Thank you so much.